Well, this week we are in chapter 19, and chapter 19 in our book, Spiritual Depression, is entitled, The Peace of God. The Peace of God. And the text that Martin Lloyd-Jones uses as a springboard to talk about this peace of God is Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 7. Philippians chapter 4, 6 and 7. Paul says, be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. In referencing Paul's words in Philippians, Lloyd-Jones begins the chapter by noting that This statement of Paul's is undoubtedly one of the noblest, greatest, and most comforting statements which is to be found anywhere in any existing literature. One is tempted to say that about many passages in the Scripture, and yet from the standpoint of our personal lives in this world, and from the standpoint of practical experience, there is nothing that has greater comfort for God's people than these two verses. Lloyd-Jones says. He continues, In them, the apostle is continuing what is not only the major theme of this fourth chapter, but the major theme of the entire epistle. He is concerned about the happiness and the joy of the members of the church at Philippi. He has written the specific exhortation that they should rejoice in the Lord always. And again, he says, rejoice. In his great desire that these people might maintain that constant rejoicing in the Lord, the Apostle has been considering various forces and factors that tend from time to time to rob the Christian of that joy and to bring him down to a lower level of Christian living. End quote. So in this opening paragraph, Lloyd-Jones gives us the context and the driving aim of the letter Paul wrote to the believers in Philippi. His aim is to encourage God's people to be joyful. And his desire is that Christians might maintain their joy in the Lord because the circumstances of life have a tendency to rob us of our joy in the Lord. And you'll notice there at the bottom of page 261 that he refers to the things that happen to us in life as the tyranny of circumstances. In this life, you and I will meet with varied occurrences that will tempt us to lose our joy. And Lloyd-Jones notes that this is the theme of much of the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, we find believers striving to maintain strong faith in the Lord in the midst of trials, changes, losses, physical weaknesses, personal failures, and persecutions. From examining the lives of Job and Joseph, David, Israel, Those among the first century church, we find that one of the main themes of Scripture involves maintaining our faith in the Lord in the midst of changing circumstances and problems. This is where we live. 
This is the reality of life. There's nothing new under the sun. That which has been is here today. So having noted this, Lloyd-Jones continues at the top of page 261 by taking Philippians 4, 6, and 7 and examining its meaning and its implication to our life. And the first thing that is needful to recognize about Paul's words to the believers in Philippi is the mentioning of what we have to avoid if we are to know God's peace and joy. And the first negative injunction mentioned by Paul, Philippians 4, 6, is the need to avoid being careful. Paul says, be careful for nothing. And it's important to know that this word careful means to be full of care. It means to be anxious, to be nervous, to be full of concern. And it's the same word used by Christ in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, take no thought of tomorrow. In other words, don't be anxious about tomorrow. Don't meditate over much upon that which has not yet come to pass. Don't become nervous about what you have not faced. That's our temptation. To think about tomorrow and the problems that will be on tomorrow. But Jesus says we ought not to do such things. So this is what the word careful means in the King James Version of the Bible. It does not mean don't be careful. It doesn't mean don't be prudent. Don't think through things and make plans. It means don't let your soul become harassed by circumstances. Don't worry about tomorrow because God's already there. We don't know what tomorrow holds, but we know who holds tomorrow. So moving from the examination of this negative injunction that Paul mentions, Lloyd-Jones mentions that there is a profound piece of biblical psychology given in Paul's exhortation. Within verses 6 and 7, Jones mentions that the Apostle shows us how we tend to get into this state of nervousness, in this state of anxiety. And looking to the objective mentioned in verse 7, we find that the trouble of our anxieties, the trouble of our lack of joy and peace in the Lord comes from our heart and mind. Quote, Lloyd-Jones says, it is the heart and the mind that tend to produce this state of anxiety, this morbid care and uneasiness. And then continuing in this theme, Lloyd-Jones says at the top of page 264 that what Paul is saying is that we can control many things in our lives and outside of our lives, but we cannot control our hearts and minds. This condition of anxiety is something which is, in a sense, outside your own control. It happens apart from you and in spite of you. Now, when you first read that, you might wonder, is this true? We have no control over our hearts and our minds? Well, to prove his point... He encourages his listeners to recall those occasions in which your sleep was troubled 
because you were thinking about some problem. You try to sleep, and you can't. And you can't sleep because of something that is heavy on your heart. Or perhaps you do fall asleep for a little bit, but then you awake out of sleep with that same anxiety on your heart and mind. You wish that you could get rid of these thoughts and emotions. But for whatever reason, they just won't go away. So in this sense, Lloyd-Jones is saying you cannot fully control your thoughts and the feelings that press upon your heart. You can't just flip a switch in your heart and your mind and say, I'm turning you off now so I can go to bed. And in reaching for that switch at once, they're just all vanished away. Poof, it's gone. It's like you took a pill and all, you're altogether spiritual now. Boy, Joan says on page 265, Whether you like it or not, we are the victims of thoughts and feelings produced by our minds and hearts. So he says we need to recognize this and do everything we can to avoid dwelling on that which wants to master us. I think of Martin Luther's quotes in this regard. You can't help the birds flying over your head. But you can prevent them from building a nest in your hair. Did you get the analogy? You can't prevent birds flying over your hair as you walk out outside. They're just going to do it. But you can prevent them from coming close to you, landing on your head and making a nest there. If you don't shoo them off, they will make a nest there. And so it is with our thoughts and the feelings and the circumstances that come into our life. If you drive down Highway 10, if you go to the local mall, if you're watching television, you can't help what comes across your eyes. And even if you're not exposed to these things, sometimes Satan has a way of hurling things at you at the strangest times and then you stop and think, where did that come from? You can't help the fact that you have a flesh that's sinful. You have an enemy who hates you and you live in a world that wants to allure you to itself. You can't help that. But you can avoid dwelling on that which wants to master you. So principle number one that Lloyd-Jones is laying down from Philippians chapter 4 is Be anxious for nothing. That's the negative. That's what we ought to avoid. We ought to avoid anxious thoughts. Anxious feelings. Now this may seem to be a bit of enigma to you. Because you just said that you have no power, no control. What comes in your life? And now you're saying that we should not be anxious. So what is it? The answer is yes. Same book of the Bible, Paul notes the work of sanctification. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You need to take God's word and meditate on it day and night. 
You need to take up the sword of the Spirit. You need to put on the armor of God. You need to set your affections on things above, not on things of this earth, right? Work out. You, 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 you work out your salvation. Why? Same text. For it's God that worketh in you, both to will and to do of good His pleasure. So who lives your Christian life? You are God. If you say you... I don't think you want to take the credit for the great things that God does in you. And if you say, it's all God, well, I don't think you want to blame God for all your failures. So who is it? We're co-laborers with God. We rest in God. We trust in Him. We rely on His strength as we put into practice. It's not an either or, it's a both and. Our text this morning in Sunday school, 1 Peter chapter 4, if any man preach, if any man teach, if any man speak, let him teach as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him minister in the strength that God gives, that God in all things might be glorified. So we do speak, we do minister, but we don't do it of our own power and strength. We do it in the strength of the Lord. So principle number one, be anxious for nothing. We're talking about finding peace in Christ, maintaining joy in the Lord. Be anxious for nothing. Principle number two involves the positive command, which is that which we ought to give ourselves to rather than thinking upon our problems. And I love how the Bible is so consistent. This is the put off, put on method. We put off the old man. What do we do? We replace it with the new man. Stop being worried. Don't do that. Okay, so what should we do now? Well, here's the positive command. Don't think upon your problems, but rather give yourself to something else. And the command here is to pray. Let your request be made known unto God. And Lloyd-Jones says, this is the Christian's cure for our troubles. This is the pathway to peace with God. And you'll notice that Paul provides us with the particular instructions for carrying out his injunction. He says, be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And in the fullness of the command, we find the various elements of prayer. So let's break this down. When you're tempted to become anxious, overwhelmed, doubtful, in the midst of discouraging circumstances, what should you do? How should we respond? Well, the text tells us, number one, Lloyd-Jones says, you need to pray. You need to pray. And in breaking down this word prayer, Lloyd-Jones mentions that prayer in its essence is worship. It's not just the articulation of words. Jesus spoke about this in the Sermon on the Mount. The Pharisees are those who pray according to their vain repetition. They pray things in memory. It's the same prayers over and over and over, and they think themselves spiritual because of the high and holy repetitive prayers that they pray. 
That's not what prayer is. Prayer is the pouring of our hearts out to God. Prayer, in its essence, is turning away from ourselves and turning to God, casting all of our care upon Him, knowing that He cares for us. What is prayer? Prayer is worship. So Lloyd-Jones says, you need to recognize as you come to the Lord in prayer that we are entering into His presence. We're not praying to ourselves. We're not praying to others. We're not praying to the wall. We're praying to our Creator. So Lloyd-Jones says, before you rush to God with your petitions, you need to take a moment and be still. You need to be mindful of the fact of who God is and what God has promised in His Word. You need to spend a few moments praising God for who He is and what He has done in your life. Recall His blessings. Recall past answers to prayer so that when you really come to pray, you'll be in the right frame of mind. I had a professor in Bible college who said something so helpful that it has stuck with me ever since. He says, sometimes it takes several minutes just to get into an attitude of prayer when we pray. He says, sometimes, for him, he says, it takes 10, 15 minutes for me to just get my mind focused on what I'm doing in prayer. Yes, we know theologically that when we bow our hearts, sometimes bow our heads and close our eyes. We know that God hears us. We know that we're coming to Him. But to take a moment and really soak that in and to think about it, we are approaching the high and holy throne of God. Think about that. Think about a peasant coming to a castle and wanting to talk to the king. We're coming before the King of kings and Lord of lords. We're coming before the one who hears all and knows all. We're coming to the one who's able to help us. Prayer. That's what prayer is. Knowing that with God all things are possible. There's nothing too hard for Him. So what should we do rather than worry? Be anxious if we want to have peace? We need to pray. What is prayer? Prayer is worship. Number two, Lloyd-Jones says, following prayer comes supplication. Having worshipped God because God is God and is worthy of all worship, having adored Him in our hearts, then and only then do we bring before Him those particular things that are concerning us. So don't put the cart in front of the horse. When you come to prayer, take a few moments to think about what you're doing and to think about what you want to ask. And before you ask, think about whether your requests are in submission to God's will. The Apostle James tells us that we can pray according to our own heart's lust. And when we do that, we're praying amiss. So when we come to God in prayer, specifically asking for things, 
we need to make sure that we're not asking for things that are according to our own heart's desires, but asking things that are in tune with God's holy will and for our spiritual good. God, if it be your will, take this hangnail away from me. But if not, give me the grace and strength to live for you in the midst of it. Of course, I'm using a minor, trivial example to make a point. But this is the essence of coming to God in prayer, making our supplications known. Think about what you're asking. Make sure that you're not asking things just for your ease and your comfort, but for the glory of God. And then number three, coming near to God, letting our requests be made known unto Him, we ought to make sure that we come to God with thanksgiving. This does not mean coming to God with a turkey, mashed potatoes and gravy and stuffing. Come to God with a grateful heart. Come to God with a spirit of praise. And this is one of the most vital of all the terms given by Paul Jones notes. Quote, If while we pray to God we have a grudge against Him in our hearts, we have no right to expect that peace which will keep our hearts and minds. If we go on our knees feeling that God is against us, we may as well get up and get out. Jones says we must approach Him with thanksgiving. And this is something that we must do deliberately, on purpose. We need to ask ourselves, as we come to the Lord in prayer, what things can we thank God for? So everything seems to be against us. It seems that we have nothing to be thankful for, but surely there are many things we can be thankful for. So what are they? Recall them to mind. Articulate them in the ears of God. Remember, prayer is not just asking for a specific thing. Prayer involves several elements. Let me remind you of the acronym ACTS. A-C-T-S. Adoration is a part of prayer. Confession. Thanksgiving. Supplication. Most of us just focus in on the supplication. But we need all four parts. We need to adore the Lord. God, you are great. You are greatly to be praised. Adoration. Confess, Lord, I'm sorry for the time that I've wasted this week. I'm sorry for the things that I've thought, for the things that I've done. Forgive me. Be merciful to me. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That's part of prayer. Number three, thanksgiving. Lord, thank you. What should we thank the Lord for? Thank you for giving me your grace. Thank you for seeking me when I was going astray. We can thank the Lord for salvation, can't we? No matter where we are in life, if you have the Lord, you have hope beyond the grave. We can be thankful for that. Thank you, Lord, for forgiving me of my sins. Thank you for assuring me that I have a home in heaven. Thank you in that salvation for giving me your spirit, which comforts me and guides me. And allows me to understand what you have in your word. There's another essence. Thank you for your word. 
which brings me delight in the midst of my problems. Thank you for the fellowship we have in our brothers and sisters in Christ who are a support in our times of discouragements. Thank you, Lord, for temporal blessings. We don't deserve it, but you have bestowed these by your grace. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So in our coming to God, in our trials, specifically in the area of prayer, it's needful for us to come before God with thanksgiving. Being thankful and finding peace go hand in hand. I haven't met a Christian yet who has true peace, who is filled with a spirit of ingratitude. They're like Ebenezer Scrooge. Humbug. Yeah, I've got peace with God, so what? What's that to you? (laughs) Those two are inconsistent, incompatible one to another. Being thankful to the Lord. Fanny Crosby, blind, could not see. And yet she writes, praise Him, praise Him. And yet she says, If I had the chance to see, I would not take it. God has used my blindness for the furtherance of His kingdom and for my spiritual good. She's thankful. And we look at those instances and then we're rebuked, aren't we? Because we don't have it that bad. If they can be thankful, surely we can be thankful. If we're sitting in a beautiful home, two cars in the garage, money in the bank. I mean, think about what your life would be if you were blind, dependent upon others. It would be easy to grow bitter. You can't become bitter. Praising God will get us out of that dungeon of bitterness. Moving on, Lloyd-Jones notes that it's needful for us to recognize the gracious promise of God to all who will do what is said in Philippians 4.6. So having seen what we are to do, looking to verse 7, we find the promise that is given to us if, here's the condition, if we will follow God's ways. Be careful for nothing, but in everything. Notice that word, that phrase, everything. By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God and the peace of God which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. There's the promise. It reminds me of Isaiah's promise. Do you remember? Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace. Perfect peace. Shalom, shalom. Peace, peace. Whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. When you pray, when you worship, when you develop a thankful heart for God in the midst of afflictions and problems and worries, the Bible says, God promises, the peace of God will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And this word for keep is the word for guard. We're in the midst of a battle. So as we find refuge in Christ, as we find refuge in His presence through prayer, He's able to keep us from the enemy's attacks. He is able to keep us from falling, as Jude says. 
and you're running to God and you're casting all your care upon Him, God promises, God who cannot lie, promises to guard you and shelter you and help you in your time of trouble. What does Romans chapter 4, 21 tell us? Abraham believed God. And he believed God in such a way that he was persuaded that God being God was able to keep that which he promised. That's what faith is. Lord, I believe this. You told me that if I am not careful for anything, I turn from my worries and my care to you, not to men, not to medication first, not to psychology, not to self-help books, but to you. And I come to worship you. And I come with thanksgiving, being grateful for the things you've done for me. And I cast my burdens upon you. You said, Lord, you will keep me. God is a God who keeps his promises. His promises are yea and amen to the glory of God. So then Lloyd-Jones commenting on the peace that God gives notes that the peace that God gives to his people is a peace that keeps. Our peace is in, through, and of Jesus Christ, who is our peace. Remember, Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace. Remember, his gospel is called the gospel of peace. If you don't have Christ, you'll never have true peace. Where is peace found? Peace is found in a person. It's found in God. It's found in the Son of God, the mediator between God and men. He is our peace. Being justified by faith, we can have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And just know, the Bible talks about a false peace. There are many people who profess faith in Christ who say, peace, peace, when there's no peace. They profess to know God. They profess to have peace with the Lord. But in their heart and in their soul, they are entirely troubled. But if you know Christ truly, if you've been born again, you will know Christ's abiding peace. You will. So my two concluding questions are, number one, do you have peace with God? And by that I mean saving peace. Are you a Christian? Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Have you been born again? Has there been a time and a place marked by a change where you've come to believe that you are a great sinner in need of a great Savior? Listen, you can pray every day. You can read your Bible every day. You can even evangelize in the name of Christ and not know peace. Just ask Judas. But if you're truly rooted in the vine, you'll know something about the peace that God gives. You'll have the assurance given by the Spirit, the assurance given by God's Word, that you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to you. So do you have that? If not, your whole life is going to be a waste, a mess, disappointment. And then question number two, let me ask you, Are you anxious this morning? Are you troubled by anything? Are you discouraged? Are you depressed? Are you lacking peace in the Lord? Are you lacking joy in the Lord? 
And then my question is, why? What's causing that? Could it be some sin that you need to repent of? Could it be your lack of prayer? Could it be your dependence upon things that can't bring peace? Could it be your lack of filling your mind and heart with Bible truths that combat fear and lies that haunt you? There's a reason why we don't have peace. You've got to figure out that reason. Examine it. And most of the time, it deals with our relationship with Christ. The more distant our relationship is with Christ, the less we will have peace. The more that we are fellowshipping, communing with God through His Word, by His Spirit, looking to Christ, the more peace we will have. And that may seem elementary to you, but that's just Bible truth. As we know Christ personally, experientially, we will know His peace. Peace. Be careful for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus.